And hello there, Peter Mansbridge here. You are just moments away from the latest episode of The Bridge. They're back. James Moore, Jerry Butts, right here on The Bridge. And hello there once again. I know it's Monday. I know for most of the last couple of years, Mondays has been COVID Monday on the bridge. Not today. And not every Monday into the future. After listening to many of you over these past, well, really, weeks and last couple of months, you said, you know what? It's still out there. I know it's still out there. But as governments have moved away from restrictions, you're kind of on your own to make your decisions about the kind of life you're going to lead and whether that's in Canada or over here in the United Kingdom, where I am again this week. That's pretty much the way it's been. People are making up their decisions on their own about how they want to see life go forward. As I said, COVID is still there. It's still a part of our lives. But we're making decisions on an individual basis. And while we won't abandon this subject, we will stay with it on occasion. We're going to move away from the regular Mondays on this topic. And today, to kick start a new kind of era of Mondays, a special opportunity for us. It was a couple of months ago we put together the former Conservative Cabinet Minister James Moore and the former Liberal Principal Secretary to Justin Trudeau, Jerry Butts, to have a discussion about politics, really, about Canada, about politics, and about the possibilities of a nonpartisan approach on some things towards the way our politics unfolds. It was very successful. A lot of you wrote in. So we're going to try it again today. On a particular subject, we're going to look at Canada's place on the world stage, how we're seen, how the different two main parties approach Canada's position on the world stage, and how that is seen, not only at home, but abroad. So that's coming up in a moment. Let me remind you who these two guys are. James Moore was a member of Parliament for 15 years, from 2000 to 2015, He was in the Stephen Harper cabinet, a number of key positions. He was Minister of Canadian Heritage at one point. He was the Secretary of State. He was the Minister of Industry. Currently, he's a senior business advisor to the international law firm of Denton's and a public policy advisor to the uh, global public relations firm Edelman's. Jerry Butts. 2015 to 2019, Principal Secretary to Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. From 2008 to 2012, he was the President and CEO of the World Wildlife Fund of Canada. And 2003 to 2008, he was Principal Secretary to the Premier of Ontario. Currently, he's the Vice Chairman of the Eurasia Group. So both of these guys have a lot of experience. They've... uh, known each other for some time. They've fought the political fight, obviously, coming from different sides of the uh, the parliamentary aisle, if you wish, the Liberals and the Conservatives. But they have respect for each other, clearly, and uh, their conversations show that. But the whole idea of these conversations is to try and be constructive 
about the world that's unfolding before us, the world of politics that's unfolding before us. So we're going to take a break and then we're going to go uninterrupted on this question of Canada's position on the world stage with Jerry Butts and James Moore right after this. And you're back listening to The Bridge. I'm Peter Mansbridge. You're listening on either... Uh, Sirius XM Canada, Channel 167, Canada Talks, or on your favorite podcast platform. Here we go with our discussion then with James Moore and Jerry Butts. Let's get started with a pretty uh, with a pretty basic question, really. And uh, Jerry, I'll throw it at you uh, to, to get things going. We tend to consider ourselves a, a middle power. Is that an accurate reflection of how the world sees us? And what does that actually mean? Uh, no, it's not an accurate reflection of how the world sees us. I think that Germany is a middle power, right? And um, we are more, uh, I'm not sure I would ascribe a hierarchical status to us, but I think when we pick our spots and focus on our issues and stick with them over time, we can make a real difference. But the sense that we're a reservoir of latent power that's akin to a major European state, I think is a uh, um, artifact of the past. James, you uh, agree with that? Yeah, I, I think that's well put. It's hard to do hierarchical. You know, someone once described Canada as you know the quiet, thoughtful person in the back of the room who, when they speak, people listen to them. Um, but you don't speak that often in order to reserve that capital. Maybe that's true in some some elements of our of our capacity and our, and our sort of historic moral authority. But you know, people also. You know, measuring sticks have been brought out in terms of what Canada and other countries are offering into the world. Donald Trump did this with the two percent of GDP on defense spending. Other countries do this, and other institutions and NGOs do this in terms of your contribution to climate change or your contribution to um, other global interests. And so, when you think about Canada, we're at one point four percent of GDP on defense spending thereabouts, and that presumes that the current government is going to spend all of the $8 billion that they book now for defense spending. But as Andrew Leslie points out, there's $12 billion that disappeared off the books in the previous uh, in the previous uh, seven years. So, And also, to conservatives who get strident about that, Stephen Harper didn't spend 2% of GDP when we were in government, and we were in Afghanistan at the time. So it's, it, it's kind of a, uh, you know, it, it's, it's, an, it's a number whose, whose, whose virtues still need to be defended. And then on the humanitarian aid side and the foreign aid side, Canada's, we, we're at the very bottom of the pack. I think the bottom, second from the bottom or third from the bottom of the 29 OECD countries when it comes to foreign aid spending. So is, is Canada middle power? Well, you have those, that data set that says no. And then on top of that, you have incidents like, you know, the trucker protest in downtown Ottawa, where we can't secure Wellington Street in front of the prime minister's office for a month. That's not exactly the a reputational building exercise in terms of our capacity to contribute to the war in Afghanistan or other things in terms of our moral authority to be a, seen as a strong power in the world. It's interesting you make the point about the um, the failures or the the lack of hitting the numbers on 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 both the last two governments. Um, so let me phrase this next question in light of that. You know, in the past decade or so, we've seen both a liberal government and a conservative government. Has the world seen a dramatically different Canada on in terms of its place, not just on the world stage, but in terms of its foreign policy, the way it conducts foreign affairs? Are they fundamentally different, 
the way those two governments operated? Jerry? It's a good question. It really depends on the issue, Peter. I think on climate change, certainly very different, I think, in its approach to important multi multilateral institutions like NATO, uh, not so different. I'm, I'm not sure there would have been much of a difference in the, in the policies between uh, the Liberal and the Conservative Party had either one of them been in power in Afghanistan, for instance. Uh, so I think that there are really important areas where there is cross-partisan overlap in foreign policy and other areas where there's less overlap. All that said, I think that the foreign policy environment has changed dramatically from the one that we were accustomed to. You know, uh, I often say to clients of Eurasia Group that the world that you all learned about in grad school and business school where um, uh, barriers to trade were inexorably and inevitably going to fall, uh, we're going to see growing globalization and the progress that comes along with that. That world is dead. Right. So we're in a very different uh, re-regionalizing, uh, de-globalizing world. And that's going to call for a very different kind of foreign policy. James? Right. Yeah, I, I think that's true. I think differences between, you know, it was differences of emphasis and priority, I suppose, between Prime Minister Trudeau and, and Harper. But though those fundamental key key relationships like the United States, take President Trump, for example, you know, I, I don't I don't know that please, Harper, please. <laughs> I don't know that Prime Minister Harper and our government would have handled things, you know, significantly differently, which, you know, speaks to the NAFTA council that Jerry was instrumental in, in you know, uh, building with um, Christina Freeland, that there's a Canadian consensus on those kinds of things. When you have one in four um, Canadian jobs dependent on trade access to the United States, I think there's consensus and alignment there. However, <clears throat> I think a lot of the... Um, Canada's back rhetoric, um, the, the the welcoming parade at the at the Foreign Affairs um, Department when Prime Minister Trudeau went in there just after he was sworn in as Prime Minister, that you know Canada's going to take on the world and be this positive force of influence. I think in a lot of ways, Prime Minister Trudeau was mugged by reality, and it was mugged by China and the two Michaels and the realities of that relationship. And we forget that. You know, I, I think this is relatively well known that uh, uh, Minister François-Philippe Champagne, foreign affairs minister, I think, or trade minister at the time, was set to announce the beginnings of formal free trade uh, conversations with China along the lines of what had been done in Australia. It was going to be a longer burn, but we were actually in the doorstep of, of looking at a, at a formal FTA or some kind of investment deal uh, with China. Um, of course, that's all been scuttled because of the reality of things and then the reality of Donald Trump and the threats to our trade relationships. So I think very quickly, sort of the um, you know, altruistic, um, aspirational tone of Justin Trudeau got squared very quickly with the realities of domestic politics and people who are a lot stronger than we are, who are a lot more assertive than we are, and who are a lot more strategic and cagey than we are in terms of how they approach foreign affairs. But, you know, no prime minister, uh, you know, present candidates and future candidates should ever, you know, shrug away from um, having a robust understanding of foreign policy about how important it is for Canada uh, in, in terms of our security, our economy, our opportunities and obligations in the world, but also, frankly, how few Canadians really care about it. Um, you know, Canada, we are a founding member of the UN. We're the only country in the world who can say this. Founding member of the UN, founding member of NATO, partners in NAFTA, 
access to the CPTPP as a, as a full partner, access to the Canada-Europe Free Trade Agreement, members of the Five Eyes. Like we are, and, and then you add on top of that all the cultural associations and our cultural lineage and our, certainly in, a, in our multicultural large cities and, and the opportunities that presents us in, in India and China and, and all across Asia in terms of our trade access and opportunities. Like Canada is truly a global country in every context, more so I would argue than any other country in the world. And yet when it comes to politics and how people cast their votes, if you, you will knock on 500,000 doors before you find the first voter who will say, I was thinking about voting for you guys, but I want to hear about your, 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 your commitment to 2% of GDP on defense spending. Like you will not find that person. You will find a lot of people in the prairie provinces who are anxious about whether or not we're meeting our commitment to Ukraine. But that's a, that, that's a cultural alignment. That's a, that's a family alignment. But it's not a strategic alignment for Canada and the world. So our foreign policy is very much sort of small p provincial cultural uh, our cultural associations rather than a geopolitical strategic uh, imperative for Canada. So as, as a prime minister, you have this massive obligation in terms of G20 and all those, all those engagements that I described. But then on top of that, you have to make engagements in the world, understanding that obligation and opportunity, but the engagements in the world in terms of your return and retail politics are, are very culturally um, significant, but very focused into communities largely along um, familial, ethnic and community and cultural and immigration lines. You were nodding yeah. away on that, Jerry. And, and <laughs> do, me a, do me a favor when you um, expand on that now, but move in a little closer to your microphone because we're, for some reason, sure. we're missing you a bit. But go ahead, expand on on what James just said there. Yeah, sure. I think what James is describing is, um, you know, a well-accepted view that Canadian foreign policy is seen through the lens of the diaspora communities of people in Canada, right? And I think that that's um, that's certainly true, and it's probably at the macro level to the detriment of the independence of the country's foreign policy. I think, though, that, uh, and, and this would, I think, expand on the point that James was making, where the um, foreign policy context has changed most dramatically, I described that view of deglobalization, but what that really means is a radically shifting view of China, that, um, and rightly so, that the answer to the growth problems that Western liberal democracies had in the 90s was basically to access the Chinese market in the first decade of this century. And the theory was that as the Chinese middle class grew, it would demand political rights that were commensurate with its economic uh, prosperity. And the truth is, almost everybody believed that (laughs) in the 90s, right? That was a cross-party uh, bedrock belief, whether you compared the Labour and Conservative parties in Britain, the Democratic and uh, Republican parties in the United States, certainly across the spectrum in Germany, uh, France, and I would say equally so in Canada. And it turned out to be completely wrong that the China we're dealing with now is more repressive, not less repressive. It's facilitated by unprecedented advancements in surveillance uh, technology that allows it to be more autocratic rather than less so as the country gets wealthier and wealthier because a vicious cycle has developed where they're able to develop innovative technologies that allow the government to concentrate power and to stay in power. And of course, this is all um, uh, put in hyperdrive by the current leader, uh, Xi Jinping, whose tendencies are all in that direction anyway. So, 
I think we're dealing with a very different beast in China than most people expected we would. Let's remember when we first started having these conversations about opening an economic relationship with China back in the late 90s. The Canadian economy was larger than the economy of China. And it's uh, truly remarkable how much that's changed in the last 20 years. So in the international context, I think that's been a big sea change, Peter. Uh, and then I'd be interested in how James uh, approaches this. But I also think, you know, if you're a leader of a major democratic country on foreign policy, this is a bit reductive, but for the sake of brevity, I'll say it this way. There are kind of two groups of people you listen to in the government. One is the economic policy apparatus, your deputy minister of finance, your deputy minister of trade, your economic advisors, your ministers uh, in those portfolios. And then on the other side, you're dealing with the national security people um, who are in, in our uh, context in DND and the national uh, security advisor, uh, all of the people who worry about the traditional threats to and, and not so traditional on the cyber front threats to Canadian national security. And for a very long time, the former group had been winning that argument, right? They'd been saying, if you want to expand the economy, you got to deal with China. And throughout that entire period, the national security people have been saying, you folks are chasing the filthy lucre and you're dreaming in technicolor about who these people are. They're going to steal our stuff. They want to uh, uh, take our place uh, geopolitically, and they don't have the long-term national interest of the country at heart. This is not a win-win-win situation. This, they see it as a zero-sum game, and your economic advisors are naive about who they are. And I think that has changed dramatically in the United States. It's changed dramatically in the United Kingdom. And the national security people now have prevalence in that conversation, and that will have an impact on policy moving forward in every democratic country. Yeah, I think that's right. You know, when we were in government, I remember um, being chastised by, <clears throat> I was, I, I, my, one of my former titles was Secretary of State for the Asia Pacific Gateway. Well, that doesn't exist anymore. And Asia Pacific Gateway is code for China because we already have a mature relationship with Japan and South Korea, South Korea. We now we have a free trade agreement with and so on. Uh, you know, and Vietnam was not exactly the emerging economy at the time, which mm -hmm. now, now strongly is. So, um, you know, I, David Emerson was the minister for foreign affairs or for international trade and the Asia Pacific Gateway. It was in his title. I was the secretary of state and yada, yada. Because we were being chastised. People were putting up books like called Chindia about the importance of engagement in Asia. And I remember in question period being, being you know, when liberals would get up and say, you know, what, you know, how can this government abandon the opportunities of China? Why isn't the prime minister going to China? Where isn't Stephen Harper in China? Where? And then we would stand up. And I remember the note that was prepared by the department bragging about how many times Jerry Ritz, the agriculture minister, had been there, how many times I had been there, you know, and been a super defensive. No, no, we, we get it. We get it. We were, none of that would be said today um, because of the, the, the shift in the context, as uh, I think Jerry um, rightly describes it. And it's not only because the politics has changed, and but it's, it's also because there have now been some high profile private sectors, as Jerry talks about, the growth of the Chinese economy. Um, and I think. Uber is probably maybe the highest profile example that we've had in, in at least recent years, certainly from the tech sector. And largely the tech sector has been so aggressive about the opportunities in China. My God, you've got 1.4 billion people. And imagine what if this emerging middle class where you've got, you know, 400 million Chinese who live along the coast who have middle class quality of life and lifestyles and then the rest of the country. And, the, and, and, you know, when you go 300 kilometers in and, and more into the, into, the, into the western part of China, that they have a lower quality of life. But when, when China becomes a truly middle class country, my God, the first 
first mover advantage when we get there in the tech sector is that we got to go to China and got to go to China. So Uber goes to China and they get, again, as I say, get mugged by reality of things, which is the Chinese government doesn't really want foreign companies coming into China, doing really well, supplanting domestic companies that might have the aspiration to do that or making the Chinese government look weak because they couldn't provide this unless an American company or a Canadian company came in and provided this good, <clears throat> thereby sort of deflating the jingoistic nationalistic um, aspirations of the Chinese government. So foreign companies could come into China and do well on textiles <clears throat> and lower profile things, but higher profile things like moving people around with Uber, Uber goes in, dumps hundreds of millions of dollars to try to establish themselves uh, in China. China was never going to let them succeed and certainly never going to allow them to succeed and then patriate that capital back to the United States as though they've conquered China economically and then take taken their money back to the United States to, to disperse to their shareholders. It was never going to happen. And so because of those incidents, and Uber is a high profile one, but there have been others as well, that people then start getting cagey about exactly what, what does this Chinese government want? They want stability. They want to avoid conflict and, and rebellion internally. They have all of these geopolitical um, you know, imperatives because of their, their border situation in the region that they, they operate in. And they want foreign capital to come into China, but not too much, not supplant the narrative that Xi Jinping is trying to establish. So it's, it's a very challenged relationship. And I think people have sort of woken up to the new reality of things that you do business with China, but, but, be, but recognize what you're dealing with in terms of an opportunity is that it's very limited. It's going to have to be low profile, and the Chinese government is not going to allow um, countries uh, and their and their high profile brands to come in and allow China and the Chinese government to look weak to its own people, and they're very anxious about that. All right, I want to I want to move the conversation a little bit here away from uh, uh, from China now, but still on the international front and how how we're seen in the in the discussion point uh, at a time of. You know, high tension internationally, and I, you know, obviously right now it's it's Ukraine. But in a situation like that, how important is it that Canada is seen to be speaking with one voice? Um, that you know, I'm not talking about a, a coalition government any more so than we're we're already seeing in the agreement with the uh, the Liberals and the NDP. But in terms of how the country is seen at a time of high international tension, should it be seen to be speaking with one voice? Uh, and if so, how does that play out? Um, Jerry, you start. I, I think in most cases, that is absolutely true, Peter. And it was most recently and most vividly true in the NAFTA negotiations that uh, it's funny, we spent a lot, of, a lot of time talking about China, but really the only foreign policy that matters to most Canadians is our relation, bilateral relationship with the United States. And I wish we spent as much time, effort, resources, energy, both within the government, in the business community, and in civil society, thinking about our relationship with the United States as we do thinking about our relationship with the rest of the world, which, relatively speaking, is rounding error. Thus end of the sermon. Let me answer your question. <laughs> uh, I, I think when it comes to a direct um, apprehended threat to our national security, economic security and otherwise, as the NAFTA negotiations were, it's vitally important, in particular when you're dealing with a country like the United States that is so close to us and knows us so well and is able to um, uh, not manipulate, but take advantage of fissures in Canadian domestic policy uh, politics to further its own national interest. It's really, really important in the effort that James uh, was a key part of in the NAFTA Council 
deliberately set about creating a broad consensus that was, if not blind, almost allergic to partisan concerns around those around that table so that we could present ourselves as a unified country when it came to the economic and more uh, more than economic relationship with the United States. I think that was tremendously valuable in the NAFTA negotiations. With the Ukraine situation, with the Russia-Ukraine war, I think we have been a valuable member of NATO, not in spite of uh, our diaspora politics in Canada, but because of them. And we certainly, I don't think I'm betraying any state secrets when I say this, we used to hear this repeatedly from Chancellor Merkel, that Canada was one of the only countries around the NATO and G20 tables that understood the Ukraine situation, how important it was that there was uh, a partner around that table that had a depth of field on the topic because we could talk to other NATO partners about it in a way that they didn't necessarily um, understand from a cultural perspective. And I think that remains a source of Canada's unique value in this current conflict that we, uh, you know, 1.3 million Canadians of Ukrainian descent, including me, proudly on my mother's side, uh, we get this issue in a way that is easy to uh, misdiagnose if you don't have those sort of, sorts of cultural sensitivities between Russia and Ukraine. James? Yeah, all that is true. And, and uh, you know, I'll give a hotter example as well. Um, <clears throat> 9-11 happens, you know, um, 2002 was mostly about Afghanistan uh, and, and so on, shifting to 2003. Then, of course, was the shift towards Iraq. Prime Minister Craig Chen decided for a number of reasons. I think Eddie Goldenberg talks about it clearly in the, in the first chapter of his book about how it was, it was effectively, I would say, there's a, it was a, bit of a surrender of our independent foreign policy to say if the UN Security Council didn't have a second vote on the authorization of force in, in Iraq, then Canada wouldn't go. But that was Prime Minister. Kretschmer's choice. That was his foreign policy. And then Stephen Harper, official opposition leader, the Conservative Party was in favor of, of joining our traditional coalition partners, certainly in the Anglosphere, in supporting the, the, the uh, war to remove Saddam Hussein from power in Iraq. Prime Minister Kretschmer stood up famously in that one moment in question period and said, "We there has not been a second resolution, therefore Canada will not go, will not participate in the Iraq war. And the Conservatives, I remember we sat there and it was what it was. There was standing ovation from Liberals, New Democrats, and the Bloc Québécois. Um, I can say there's probably some relief amongst Conservatives that that was the case because we were probably going into a change election in, in 04 or sooner and, and you know, you can imagine that some of the thinking that was going on there, but it was what it was. And conservatives at that point shut up. And as, as the, the early sort of months of the Iraq war went militarily in, in the Americans and the coalition's favor, a lot of conservatives sort of grumbled that, you know, we should have been part of this. My God, the Americans are going to take it out on us that we're not there to help when, in case this goes bad in the rebuild. But it was, it was never publicly discussed. You didn't have the foreign affairs critic for the, for the conservative party going into Washington and going down to and talking to the, to the Bush Cheney white house and saying, just so you know, if we come into government, we'll help. No, no, there, there was a Canadian consensus and, and there was no public discussion and no public disagreement. About. And I think that's important. And, you know, and when Stephen Harper, when we were in government, whether it was in Libya or some other engagements or Justin Trudeau, and that's only a 250 person engagement in Mali, you know, there, there's some early stages debate. But, but once Canada's engaged, Canada's engaged and we stand by the make belief and we do so proudly. And I think that's very important. Um, you know, we can have can disagreements you tell, on the can you Tell me why it is important, because 
it's not important clearly on a, a number of uh, domestic issues where the where the disagreements take place and, and sometimes they get out of hand but sometimes they're quite constructive but on the foreign side the foreign policy side well, well the when the military is engaged the Canadian military is small proud tough fierce um but morale is enormously important it keeps getting i mean i remember multiple chiefs of defense staff are running us which is in part why you know the human resources challenges they'll Put it diplomatically in the, in the Canadian forces is so important that it gets squared away and dealt with effectively. But certainly when Canadian soldiers' lives are on the line in, in the field of battle or percent, possibly so, that there has to be an alignment. And because wars, wars abroad are more often lost at home than they are lost abroad because of the collapse of domestic support. Uh, and even as something as relatively small uh, as, as our engagement in Mali, as I said, 250 Canadian soldiers, or as something as massive and, and longstanding as a decades-long engagement in Afghanistan, um, you know, people over there know, and they because they talk to their families constantly, they're not sort of isolated on a mission. They, they know what's being said back home, and it, and it matters. And so if there's plus political disagreement at home, that can certainly spread itself like wildfire amongst people who are serving in the forces, even though they're entirely professional and they are mission focused. Um, you know, domestic alignment and solidarity behind troops when they're in theater and engaged in important missions uh, is, is a known. Um, also, I would say as well, with those kind of riskier elements of foreign policy, Prime Minister Craig Chan did something that was very wise that I think other prime ministers should think about when we get into in the future into some other conflicts, which is after 9-11, Prime Minister Craig Chan swore Jack Layton and Stockwell Day uh, into the Privy Council. Uh, and made them privy councillors and, and, and made them made available to them documents surrounding the 9-11 attacks, the engagement with the United States, the decision whether or not to put air marshals on planes, our approach to national security, the establishment of the Department of Public Safety, what we were doing in terms of border security and alignment with the United States. Some of the stuff that was pretty touchy and sensitive at the time, but uh, like there's a lot of information that had to be fed in in order to create all this continental apparatus of security. But Jean-Claude Chan said it's very important, actually, that Stockwell Day and as official opposition leader and Jack Layton as leader of the NDP and who are traditionally opposed to these kinds of things and alignments with the United States, that it's, it's not that they can't have a difference of opinion, but if they start asking questions publicly in question period or doing scrums on this, we can't quite have that question asked yet. The public has a right to know. It's important that the media ask these questions. We will get to it. It, is, it matters. But in this very sensitive and difficult time, when you have over 2,000 dead Americans who have been attacked in their second Pearl Harbor, when we're trying to work cooperatively with the United States, when the president of the United States says we are for us here against us. We need to have those discussions within Canada, but we need to do so in a way that's actually responsible. So we need to inform the opposition leaders in a way that they otherwise wouldn't be. So we're going to swear them in as privy councillors and make available to them the documents and the intelligence reports that we have so that they can be better informed, so they can think about how they want to think about these issues, because A, they may perform government one day, but B, they might ask questions that will put Canada at risk in terms of our relationship with the United States, or worse, put, put us at risk in terms of our security obligations and keeping Canadians safe. So, so the swearing in of, to the, of the leaders of the opposition as privy councillors, well, I think was a, was a very wise move by Prime Minister Craig that probably paved the way to such solidarity of Canadian alignment after 9-11, before the Iraq war, in that two-year, year-and-a-half window period where we did have an alignment of national interests with the United States in terms of uh, peace and security. You've both... Um You've both been in government, you know, albeit from, uh, you know, different roles, but you've also both been engaged in the past couple of years in, in uh, two big global strategic firms, if you will. What have you learned in your new vantage point about Canada's place in the world, which perhaps you didn't know 
when you were in government? Jerry? Well, I think I have had whatever illusions, um, positive illusions, and James alluded to some of those earlier uh, about Canada's outsized importance in world affairs. I've had those scales have dropped from my eyes. I think it's uh, uh, it's a bit shocking, frankly, how little Canada factors into the conversation, in particular in the American finance and business community. There are uh, investors who have the interest in Canada, you would say, uh, pay special attention to what's going on here. But for the most part, uh, Canada is definitely another country in the United States. <laughs> it's, the, it's not the focus of uh, concern whatsoever. I think that we have managed to end up on the periphery of some really important debates like the energy transition, for instance, which is something that I spend a lot of time on, largely because we've had a stop and go approach to our own domestic policy on that front over the past 25 years. That has not helped. Um, but mostly, I think what I've learned through experience that I kind of intimated uh, while in government is that Canadians, um, I never like to say anything negative about our place in the world, but I think most Canadians believe we occupy a larger place than we do. Do you think they do? Because usually, isn't it a kind of a common, a common um, criticism of ourselves, really, that we, we, we talk a good game about how important we are, but really deep down we know nobody's listening to us, that we're not a yeah, but we, player. But we do, Matt. I, I think part of, part of what infects our rhetoric, right, is that we, we share a media market with the United States. Uh, English language, you know, partner and American dialogue rhetoric and, and partisan affiliations, you know, drive the, this conversation. And so so we're, we're infected by the rhetoric and infected by the heat and the passion about these issues because the, but the, the scale of consequences isn't, isn't the same, nor the scale of the scale of obligation. To your question, though, what I've learned in the private sector is uh, versus being in government is just how transactional things are uh, and, and, and the and the time focus like, you know, people sort of a, people do often look at in certain transactions, they look at governments as like, OK, well, who's the minister? Are they engaged? Are they smart? Are, is their office effective? Do they care about our issues? Do they matter? Is there likely to be a shuffle? Is the prime minister going to run again? Are they going to win again? Is it going to be a majority or a minority? OK, if it's a minority, so on average, that's 18 months. So we're, we're going to close our agreement about then. It'll probably be the same minister. Like, it's a very transactional sort of look at the, at the government. It's, it's, it's not idealistic. It's not ideological uh, for the most part. Um, it's just sort of, you know, if you're building a home, you have a land assembly and you're going to, you want to build some homes and in Vancouver, it's like, who's the mayor? Who's the city council? What's the city planner or city manager? Are they a good guy? Are they smart? Are they good? Okay. Are they helpful? Will they, will they talk to us? Can we talk Can we sort of, you know, can we engage with them? Will they, will they be reasonable with us? Um, and, and for a lot of large, certainly transactions, it's very much in that mode, right? So, okay. So, you know, so this is going to expire. Are they going to renew that? Or how's their approach? Is the deputy minister, are they engaged? Okay. Is there, is there somebody in there who we can talk to and get, so it's, that's very much how I think, um, so the private sector looks at all governments. They don't, they see red, they see blue, people have their biases and, and assumptions about governments. But I, I think the 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 um, approach more than anything else is just a, is a very sort of matter of fact, transactional uh, approach to things. And because firms have their obligation, they have a fiduciary obligation when it comes to return for investors and to manage things responsibly, uh, be accountable to their boards of directors and, and drive to drive to mission. And, uh, you know, alignment with foreign policy is, is not always um, clear and simple. 
the big, uh, you know, caveat or asterisk I would slap next to that is when moments like, um, you know, the, the invasion of Ukraine happened, then, then, then steps in this, this massive, you know, alignment of the private sector. And, and if anything else, you know, frankly, more, more than noises of the EU or the alignment to the EU, uh, but the private sector shift against Russia and the pulling out of Russia um, has been massively consequential because of the, the, the scale of the, of the clarity of the right and wrong that's, that's at play. I think that's a really interesting point, and it's something we could spend a whole show on, by the way. But um, just to add one thing, Peter, which I think is a really important thing. It might even supersede what I said uh, initially, and that is the, how technology is developed in a way that facilitates the participation in other countries' politics, right? We think of it mostly as Facebook groups and anonymous trolls on Twitter and shady cross-border fundraising for truckers or fake truckers, depending on your perspective on things. But I, I think that we are have been slow to appreciate kind of the caricature was the Russians participating in the American electoral process in 2015. But I'm way more concerned about um, American participation in Canadian electoral processes that I am about the Russians and um, uh, the technology has facilitated it in a way that it's very difficult to monitor and it's very difficult to regulate. Unless Barack Obama is endorsing Justin Trudeau. <laughs> well, at least he, did, he didn't do that anonymously as a troll on Twitter. The <laughs> but uh, are you suggesting that our, I don't know whether it's CSIS or whoever it is, is behind the curve on being able to deal with stuff like this in terms of the way other well, I'm not are. suggesting it, Peter. I, I'm not suggesting it. I'm saying it. Absolutely convincing it. <laughs> and why is that? Uh, because they're large, it's not their focus and they're outmatched on the technology with uh, by private sector platforms that are facilitating it. Okay. Yeah, and and also it's pretty hard to stop these things, right? As was yeah. once described, it's like you know, it's porous, it's digital, it's everywhere, it's constant. It's it's sort of like somebody goes on the witness stand in a trial, and they say, and they say something, and then the, the the judge turns to the jury, says, "Pretend you didn't hear that he said that he saw it." You know, like <laughs> the jury heard it. You can't tell the jury to unhear something they've heard, and so so administering these things when when it's digital, and it's constant, is 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 near damn near impossible, right? As some. George Will says it's like cobwebs trying to lasso a locomotive. It isn't going to work. Uh, you know, the, if, if the energy of people want to engage in Canadian foreign policy and or sorry, if, if foreign actors want to engage in Canadian domestic policy, um, it's pretty easy to do so. It's pretty easy to set up websites and means and structures that, you know, um, that, that are fully engaged. And, you know, Justin Trudeau, you know, be blunt about this. Justin Trudeau has become a meme and a target for people who who hate woke politics, who think that he's a sort of a symbol of a shift to sort of the softening of America and the softening and the, and the weakening of America and all that. And, um, he's, he, he is a, he's a, he's a target rich environment. When you look at the sweep of things that he said over the course of his political career, it's not that Justin Trudeau has a long has a, has a sort of a habitual, you know, constant habit of, of getting himself in trouble for saying things that inflame um, his opponents, but it's just, he's been in politics now for a long time. He's been in, 
a public national figure since 2008 in a leadership position now for almost a decade, a three-term prime minister. And just over the course of the sweep of time, you're going to accumulate enough evidence that people are going to think the worst of you. Stephen Harper had the same problem. Brian Mulroney had the same problem. It is what it is. And so, you know, with actors who want to sort of elevate you and, you know, he's, you know, people now just say Justin Trudeau, when you watch Sean Hannity and you listen to American talk shows and in the United States, that he, he has become a punching bag and people want to affect change. And so it's pretty easy to throw up a, um, you know, a social media account and spread memes and be pretty aggressive and, and nasty about it. And, you know, it's, um, you know, it's, it's pretty hard to stop. Okay. Well, it, it gets back to a conversation we had the last time we spoke, which is the, the kind of rapid uh, metastasization of tribal formation in politics. And the, the platform technology facilitates that. Trudeau has become to the American right another cultural indicator, right? That if you are in any way predisposed to be positive about Justin Trudeau, you don't belong in our community. And the repetition of that message, of course, bleeds across the border to the conservative community. And it's one of the reasons that symbiosis is one of the reasons why I think the conservative messaging on Trudeau has gotten ever more aggressive and hardened over time because it's all part of that um, that's all part of that media and communications feedback ecosystem. And the same thing is true, by the way. It was true, by the way, uh, for Stephen Harper on the left in Canada. But it's just that the technology wasn't as developed as it is now. They split the atom. Facebook and Google split the atom when it came to community formation through the delivery of advertising programs uh, in 2013, 2014, 2015. And that has created a hyperactive uh, uh, community formation mechanism, if I can put it diplomatically, online, where in the United States, these two broad groups of people don't talk to each other, and they don't really live in the same country uh, psychologically, which is something that I think we need to constantly vigilantly guard against happening here. Gentlemen, it's been a good discussion. We could go on um, uh, for a lot longer, but I, th I think we're going to uh, let that sink in uh, the different things that you've given us here. And I think, I think what I'd like to do with our next conversation, whenever we have it in another month or so, is is to take a look at the uh, the whole leadership process in terms of uh, how we pick our leaders, who who be. Who, who becomes leadership potential and how they become leadership uh, potential in Canada and whether the system is a good one uh, or not. I mean, we've, in our lifetimes and more so in mine, we've seen a, a number of different ways that leaders have been picked and I'm not sure what the, uh, what the right one is anymore. Um, so I, I think we can have, uh, we can have that conversation, especially in light of what we're, uh, witnessing already uh, going on these days in the Conservative Party, and who knows, may uh, witness it uh, at some point in the next couple of years in the Liberal Party as well. Um, okay, we're going to leave it at that. Uh, Jerry in uh, Ottawa, James in uh, in beautiful British Columbia, thank you both so much, and uh, we'll talk again soon. Lovely. Always, always a pleasure, Peter. Nice to see you both. Take care. Yeah. I love listening to those two guys. I think they uh, offer a lot in terms of food for thought for all of us. Uh, conservative James Moore, liberal Jerry Butts. Um, we've gone a little longer than normal today, uh, but I think it was worth the conversation. And I hope you, uh, I hope you do too. Tomorrow, we've got a good one tomorrow. We're going to talk about the media.
we keep talking about that in terms of uh, the changes that are taking place in the media marketplace, the impact it's having uh, on the relationship between the media and the people it serves. That's you. Uh, we've got Bill Fox with us, the author of Trump, Trudeau, Tweets, Truth. What a title. Bill's an old friend, a very smart guy. Looking forward to having that conversation tomorrow. I'm Peter Mansbridge. Thanks so much for listening to The Bridge today. We'll be back in 24 hours. Mm-hmm.